A Dharma talk is not like a lecture. Um, <clears throat> this is not a break in practice where, wow, finally some words. Um, because <clears throat> what I'm going to be practicing is, is, give, is my yogi job is sometimes giving a talk. Yours right now is mindful listening. And in many ways, if you can use this opportunity to develop your, this art of listening, which is a very refined art, independent of the content, that will be quite valuable, even if you don't remember one thing that's been said. Of course, I'll, my feelings will be hurt, but um, how do you do that? Well, just listen. And one of the main ways we develop the art of listening is by seeing how we're not listening or how we're partially listening. So as, you, uh, as whatever it is that comes out of this mouth is received by you, uh, perhaps there are reactions. You know, I agree with this, that's good, or I disagree with that, that's different. The Tibetans told me something else. And before you know it, you're off somewhere, and then you come back. Um, listening uh, is just what we've been saying all along. It's relaxed alertness. And in order to listen to, this, to what's being said, you have to listen to yourself at the same time. It's just like uh, when you're in learning to play music. You have to, in listening to the music that you put out, you keep refining it, and you refine your ability to even how to listen. Um, I'd like to say a few words about learning. I'm going to continue where we left off, the Four Noble Truths, and do my best to bring it into the practicality of what we're doing here. Uh, I grew up in the environment that I grew up in. Learning was very important. Was emphasized from a very early age. There were always books around, and uh, going to the library, public library, and so forth. Um, that was just normal. It wasn't anything special. And then later on, you go to school, and you go to school, and you learn. You read from books, have teachers, you get different degrees, and that's what learning meant to me. Um, <clears throat> it's good. I'm, I'm happy that I was brought up that way. It made life a lot easier for me. But I defined education and learning emotionally as that which goes on in schools uh, and mainly comes out of books. And that's one kind of education. And then I was told that if you're good at that, you're intelligent. And so I try to be good at that. And I was told I'm intelligent. Did you know that? <laughs> My mother thinks so, anyway. Wherever she is. Um, <clears throat> and it took years of, uh, after getting an advanced degree and teaching in the university system for 10 years, um, to begin to see that education um, of course, includes knowledge and putting uh, the knowledge that's come before us and what we've learned about it, uh, combining it, doing creative things with it. That's a, a beautiful human capacity. And no one, uh, I'm not demeaning that. But to define intelligence that way is to define intelligence unintelligently. Because a lot of what uh, Michael and I have been saying now for a few days is that dharma practice is a way of opening up to another form of intelligence. It's not at the expense of rational, logical reasoning, uh, the accumulation of knowledge, and putting that knowledge to good use, technical, uh, liberal arts, all kinds of knowledge. And it took me quite a while to, to see the limits of knowledge that comes out of books and out of schools and out of teachers' mouths and understand that real education uh, includes that, but it goes well beyond, and it's something you do for, the rest, for your whole life. This was before I ever heard of, what the, the, uh, heard of the Buddha, but I didn't come upon the teaching. And uh, it was through the limitations 
of just learning about things, uh, which then affected me. I realized that I, in some ways I was undeveloped, that it got me to search. And one thing led to another, and here we are. Uh, here I am. Another example uh, was that there's learning that comes from life itself, where that is, life is the great teacher. And uh, for the learning to go on, we have to pay attention and, be, and recognize that there is a teaching going on and wanting, to, and wanting to learn the lessons that life has to teach us. Okay, <clears throat> some years ago, I'm coming at this in a few different ways. Some years ago, I went on a pilgrimage to India, the holy places of the Buddha. There are eight. And it was a tour, there were, I don't know, about 10 or 15 of us. And we went to these places. And by about the third site, I started to realize that all of us had read lots of the life of the Buddha and heard people talk about it and teachers and so forth. And this is where the Buddha was born. This is where the Buddha gave this particular talk. This is where the Buddha uh, did this, that. And by the third one, I realized that my experience of the place was largely due to a kind of uh, conditioning. That because, oh, this is where the Buddha did it, and I read about it, and I'd get it teary-eyed and something. But I looked around, and all I saw was some trees and some rocks. I didn't feel it was anything different than, you know, I could have been in Central Park or anywhere else in the world. <laughs> I just felt like... So um, then a few places, I was really genuinely moved. From that point on, I started to realize that's part of the curse of if you're going to practice Vipassana is that uh, it, you start really looking at things carefully, and a lot of things don't stand up. Or you see, they have. The, it was good to visit these places, and many of the people who didn't come to this conclusion, and it's not like I broadcast, I didn't mention it at all, they were inspired, and it was very good for them. They, they, uh, and they were busloads of Japanese tourists, uh, who those of you who have been to India know about this. And some, they have a tradition, before you die, you have to go to these eight places, and they would just, you know, check, it's a checkoff list. And, um, but who, I don't mean to minimize that, because if doing it, they felt a certain kind of security, and maybe they felt they were going to get a good rebirth, and they, it helped them age and face death. So I, who's to say anything? But a path of inquiry, which this is, uh, you look, take a fresh look at everything. There were a few places where I genuinely was inspired, and I can't tell you why. It wasn't because I'd read about it, of, the, of these eight places. There were two or three that I was really moved by, and I didn't try to uh, think my way out of spoil it by thinking. Um, but at the end of the uh, pilgrimage, I came to the conclusion that the main value for me of the outer pilgrimage is to get you to go on an inner pilgrimage that if we just outer pilgrimage for me, it would just be high-class tourism. Um, nice, but I haven't, I'm not that interested in that, at least not anymore. And even then I wasn't. And so did that trip help me to go on an inner pilgrimage? Yes, it did. And to that degree, it was valuable. Uh, the pilgrimage is a journey of self-discovery. The Four Noble Truths is not about beliefs. These are categories of human experience, and they're ways in which the Buddha suggests we look at our experience. And it comes from, to put it in, to paraphrase it, the Buddha looked around and he said, humans, you're having a hard time. Boy, you really don't know how to live. He started with himself, of course. And he said, let me give you a few hints. And out came the Four Noble Truths. I mean, it came, wasn't that simple. Uh, which are guidelines to living, which include techniques and attitudes and ways of relating to the same life that every human being faces. So um, from a certain point, when I realized the limitations, not the uselessness of academic, of knowledge, it's not just academic, it's not just I'm not singling out the university or professors, that's wonderful. And that kind of intelligence has produced some extraordinary things. But it's so overdeveloped, science and technology, at the expense of another kind of learning. 
another kind of intelligence, and I would call wisdom, uh, which we've been also calling skill and living, a form of intelligence. Uh, it's a way of living intelligently. Uh, this is one way that the Buddha suggests we do it. It's not the only model. It's a model. It's saying, start looking at things this way. Reflect on this and pay attention. See if this doesn't help you get on with your life. Well, for myself, it has. That's why I keep doing it. Um, so, we were talking about skill the other day, if you recall. First noble truth is that there is suffering in life. What's asked of us is that if it is happening, to see it, to know that we're suffering. There's some unsatisfactoriness. It could range from just mild irritation to torment to very subtle kinds of existential sense of being incomplete or something's insufficient, lacking here. There's some yearning that's not being satisfied. And if you've had a lot of stuff satisfied uh, and then you see the limits of that, then it can become quite a challenge. And uh, in this scheme of things, the second noble truth is saying there's a cause to it. There's a, a cause, in other words, it comes out of what you, how you lived, how the mind saw reality, how it acted, how it concluded, how it, what it did in regard to a particular situation, and then out of that grew suffering. So these first two are considered, to, in this language, are considered to be skillful, unskillful causes which produce unskillful outcomes. That is, they're not beneficial for you. And if they're not beneficial for you, it's a good chance they're not for the people in your life, too. Then uh, the third noble truth is saying there is cessation. There's an end to this. Some of it is big cessation, sometimes called enlightenment, different degrees of, of awakening. And it can be momentary. You've all, everyone who's in the groups I've been with, maybe it's just five seconds where you're not uh, caught somewhere, grasping, wanting things to be a certain way, and they're not. We're trying to hold on to something, and it it's, doesn't care. It's just this, slipping right through. It's like a handful of sand just falling right through your fingers, and you suffer. Okay, And there's a, what is being said is there's a, there's a skillful effect and that is the end of suffering. But it, that too has a cause, and the cause is the path, the Eightfold Path. Now, I'm not going to load you up with eight things. I'm just going to, uh, because then you'll start thinking about it, and then it will defeat the purpose of our retreat. So I'm going to just kind of hint at a few, the essence of it, some of the important aspects of it, the spirit of it, um, and hope that that gets you when you go home. It's helpful to read it and study it in the service of actually uh, using it to help you live by and to find out if, indeed, it does help you live. Okay. Uh, so that's a skillful cause and producing a skillful effect. That, that brings about something that's beneficial uh, be, uh, and for you, and if it is for you, it may be very helpful for others in your life as well. Let's get to this word skillful because I tend to use it a lot, and I like it. One of the things the Buddha uh, observed is that there are skills in life and that they can be mastered, and that skills have different outcomes. Different skills have different outcomes. And these outcomes um, can be seen, evaluated. Now. If you read the suttas, there are endless, lots of, not endless, but lots of examples about butchers, uh, uh, carpenters, potters, musicians, uh, all sort of art, uh, entering into arts, various arts. So right now as I speak, I am going to ask you, are there some skills in your life that uh, it might be carpentry, it might be plumbing, it might be painting or music, it might be studying history, it could be anything, cooking. Let's take cooking. Um, it's a set of skills, and what the Buddha concluded is that um, skills have an effect, and that it is possible to master certain skills. Now, everyone knew that. All these examples 
are pointing to people who, who mastered archery, who mastered pottery, who mastered baking, etc. There really are a lot of examples in the suttas. Uh, and then he went from that to can we master the skill of living, skill in living, which is what you could call wisdom. I see it as an, a form of intelligence, not in contradiction to intellectual, conceptual, logical, rational intelligence, but something that by and large, we're not making use of because we don't even know it's there. Because our education has not, um, doesn't know it's there. So how could we be taught something that, in effect, doesn't exist? Now, what is being said, and this is by no means the exclusive property of, of uh, Buddhism. Many of the mystics, in a very different language, in all kinds of different religions, often they were, were banished or had a lot of suffering in their own religion. Because they went very, very deeply and they understood certain, a certain depth of knowing that human beings, uh, that is possible for humans, and tried to share it. But then it came, became concluded, uh, poetry came out of it and all kinds of writings. Uh, it doesn't make its way into, uh, for the rest of us. But what the Buddha is saying is that everyone has this capacity. He's saying, I'm not a god, I'm not an avatar. I'm a human being who woke up. I'm awake. I prefer the term awakening to enlightenment, in part because we tend to have associations with European enlightenment, the age of enlightenment. and uh, As good as that is, this is different. It's, I prefer awakening. So these skills is what we're really developing here. We're, de we're developing skills which... Um, for example, right effort, which is one of the factors of the Eightfold Path, is from this point of view, is developing, is using energy uh, to cultivate those kinds of ways of speaking, thinking, and acting that are beneficial. They're skillful. If you don't have them, develop them. If you already have them, strengthen them. And it's also a way of unlearning. Uh, ways of living that are unskillful, unintelligent, that produce suffering for us and for others. Unle unlearn the ones that you're already doing and don't pick up any bad habits. And the Buddha is also implying it's never too late to start. You can always start anew, all of us. Sometimes people will say, well, it's a little late in life, I'm too old, this and that. It's always now. Whether you've been practicing for 30 years or you just walked into this retreat for the first time. Granted, there are differences, but the practice now and forever is going to be about now. And so start where you are. And that's, that's the attitude of this practice. Okay. Uh, learning implies, uh, for example, take cooking, uh, that you make mistakes. You experiment. Uh, you put in a little too much paprika. You taste it. Mmm, too much. So you leave a little out. And you have someone else, maybe a master, a cook or a friend, they taste it and say, you're right, too much. And then you, you make it a little bit left out. Mmm, that's good. And then maybe it's too much of this and not enough of that. So in order to master cooking, you have to experiment, you have to make mistakes, and you have to be interested in learning from your mistakes. It's not a criminal offense to make a mistake. That's the way we learn. Every art, those of you who have an, an art form of any kind, and a, a skill that you really enjoy. It could be a hobby. Um, don't you make lots of mistakes? If someone writes a book, many more pages are in the trash than they ever get published. Most of it is just, thank God there's a delete button on the computer. Um, but this is about living. It's different. And Michael and I have been trying to encourage us to, to see this, uh, that a wisdom path is about learning. It's about learning how to live. In order to learn how to live, you have to pay attention. How else can you learn? Uh, that's why the Buddha features attention, whether you call it mindfulness or whatever words you like. If you don't pay attention, how are you going to know what you're doing? How will you evaluate what's happening? How will you then find out if what you're doing, has, what the effect is. Because, you see, at the time, a lot of the teachings in India were saying, you know, it's written, 
astrology had all these laws and, and many religions. Uh, my grandfather, very orthodox Jew, if we started to discuss things and after I had a little bit of junior high school science, I would question him and he felt very frustrated. But then he would end the argument. It wasn't, it was beginning, I would never argue with him because he was too old. He was my age. <laughs> <laughs> so be respectful. So at a certain point, and I'm happy he did it because I might have, you know, being a teenager, I might really have taken, not been courteous, respectful. And he would say, it says in the book, that's the end of it. The Bible says, finish, okay, bye. Okay. Uh, or it's written, it's written in the heavens, in the stars. God is doing this. To, uh, God has some plan for us. Okay. Maybe, I don't know. But the Buddha is saying something quite different. He's saying, examine what you do and see the effects that it has. And the effects that are beneficial, that help you learn, and that help you uh, start to let go of ways of suffering. If you recall from what Michael and I have been saying, there are ways of suffering that are unnecessary. This, they emanate from the psyche. There's pain in life, of course. Take advantage of all kinds of, of medicines and therapies, by all means. But there's still aging, sickness, and death. That's not going to go away. But the mind is negotiable. There's a lot optional sometimes used. It's not, not a bad way to look at it. We have some say. Something can be done. It's not hopeless by any means. But in order to affect this change, you have to pay attention. And yet, not only do you have to pay attention, uh, Let's say that's right mindfulness, and right effort would be uh, one of the meanings of mindfulness is neglected. It's a very important meaning. When people now mindfulness is used for everything. In the Buddha's teaching, anyway, it doesn't carry everything. Um, there are other terms like sampajanya. I don't want to load you up with a bunch of terms, but one of the meanings of mindfulness that's neglected is that um, it's remembering. It's to remember to keep in mind what you've decided to keep in mind. If you're doing breath awareness, to remember to, to turn to the breath, if that's what you've set for yourself. If it's in the second set of instructions this morning, to remember to, to be in the present moment with what's there. And then to bring attention to it. It takes energy and effort to direct it to, let's say, the breath. We'll stay with the breath for a moment. And then when you do that, the degree to which our attention can stay with the breath with some continuity, that's right concentration. Because little by little, we start to develop the ability to, it's samadhi, to, to have a steady mind. It's something you can learn how to do. It's a skill, like learning anything else. Some of the questions uh, that came up, we're all so impatient. We want things because we're in pain. And we want things to change right away. I'm coming here five days. Maybe you have some, envisioned some, I don't know, at the end of it, if you do everything we tell you to do, uh, you'll be glow in the dark when you go home. <laughs> I don't think so. I'll be the same jerk after the five days. Maybe you'll have better luck. I don't know. Okay. Um, it's taken this many years to put together who we are which doesn't really, look, everyone learns a bit. Most people learn from just living. The school of hard knocks, sure, but it's a limited kind of learning. This is a curriculum, which if you use it, it's being maintained and it's for you to test it, is maintaining that there's a whole new dimension of learning and understanding, and I would call it a form of intelligence, that we've defined intelligence in a very limited way, to just be rational, etc. And we've so developed that, it's brilliant. Technology and science, staggeringly brilliant. And it's been at the, at the neglect of learning how to live. Now there's a movement in, it has to start with children. It's not too late for us, but it does have to start with children. And now more and more educators are seeing that uh, a new form of uh, education, which includes something like mindfulness, has to come in. And it's being brought into industry and law and professions. But mindfulness can be used to make you into a more efficient bomb maker. Because, and samadhi, 
steadiness of mind, you can become a much better safe cracker. Just be a great thief. But that's in the Buddha's language called Micha Samadhi, wrong Samadhi. So in other words, these skills are meant to be used in the development of wising up. Remember old John Wayne, to wise up. And so if they're used in other ways, well, that's your business. Of course, if you have a concentrated mind, that's an asset in life. But the concentration is in the service of what? So the Four Noble Truths are about that. It's sort of, a, in a sense, a curriculum, a new way to look at our experience so that this experience uh, gets seen and we learn what needs to be let go of. We unlearn it. And the seeing does a lot of it. This is a point that I don't think I found it difficult to get across in the groups. Uh, so I'm going to try again. Mindfulness is not just a word, it's an energy. When you say, I was mindful of the breath, or I was mindful of pain somewhere, emotional or physical, the word is a, is an, is a label pointing to seeing energy. Seeing is a form of energy. Where is it? How much does it weigh? What color is it? Impossible. Where's the mind? One teacher, ancient uh, Chinese teacher, someone came in and said, please heal my mind. It's in torment. He said, okay, come back tomorrow and show me your mind, and then I'll fix it for you. And the guy comes back and he says, I can't find my mind. And he said, okay, so I've cured you. In other words, it's subtle. Okay. Um, The early stages of senility are settling in. Where was I? <laughs> I need help. Yes, thank you. I'm supposed to do this, right? Okay. Uh, seeing energy touches whatever it touches, the breath, fear, loneliness, joy. And something happens in that interaction between seeing energy and whatever the seeing touches. And you can feel it. But now, here's where we get to, okay, I think I'm going to bring in two very ancient Indian teaching stories. They precede the Buddha, but they apply. Um, it's, I hope it helps, the first teaching, I hope it helps in the two sets of instructions that we've given you. One, exclusive attention to the body sitting and breathing. The second one, open, choiceless awareness, I'm calling it, there are other names for it where we sit and we're just open to whatever's there, whatever life provides us with. In the first teaching story, there was a, a, a king who was enlightened. And someone, he was an enlightened yogi in addition to being a king. And so someone came to him and said, uh, my goodness, you're a king. You have all these responsibilities and you're also awakened. Uh, could you take me on as a student and teach me how to do that? And said, sure. What's my first lesson? He said, go into the palace and put a pot of hot oil on your head and go through every room of the palace without spilling a drop. And as you, if you can learn to do that, come back and report here. So this very diligent yogi, aspiring yogi, goes through every room in the palace, comes back, and has not spilled a drop and is very, very proud. Okay, that's our first kind of practice in a way. We're coming back to the breath again, not to spill one, of course we spill the oil a lot, but uh, how, this person probably also did until he finally learned how to balance it on his head and never spill a drop. But what we're doing, wisdom can come up in the process. Wisdom can come up spontaneously anywhere. For example, you might, as you're following the breath and the mind's being so wild, those of you, we all know that, and some of you get discouraged by it, and we keep telling you it's normal. To begin with, your mind is wild, and that's why you're here, in part. Okay. Um, that wildness uh, is something that, as you start to pay attention, you can improve it. It's a skill. You can learn how to concentrate. Now, sometimes some wisdom pops up, even though officially it's a con right concentration, in that you see that the way the mind spends its energy when it's not concentrated Take a look at how your mind spends its day. It is hilarious and can be humiliating. It's just all over the place. Most of it repeated things, 
for the 200th time, I'm going to tell my friend, well, he, no one's going to do that. I've been, you, and for the last 15 years, you've been about to tell him off. Tell him off already and get it over with. I'm going to start doing many more retreats like you do. I'm going to start doing it. Uh -huh, okay, good. Do it. Over deep ruts in the brain. Again, and you look at it, so much of what the mind is up to on its own, wild, is a dissipation of energy. It's not, some of it's useful, but most of it isn't. It's just an untrained mind. It's just going on and on. That's, and it uses up energy. And then, so you might see that. This is, I'm trying to give you an example of how learning can work. You see that, hmm, that's interesting. I didn't even know I was squandering so much energy. We don't. We might even think of energy as just physical. Okay, and then we come back to the breath. And as we more and more learn how to stay with the breath a little bit more continuously, finally, perhaps let's, to use the story, not dropping any oil, we see that a certain joy comes from a concentrated mind. Wow, I feel peaceful. Uh, uh, there's a certain rejuvenation that comes upon me. The nervous system seems to be a little stronger, etc. There are some very beneficial things that come from concentration. Calm and joy and peace and so forth. And you start saying, I get it, duh. When I just let my mind roam wildly, it just squanders all this energy. When I come back to such a simple-minded thing, and who would have thought that? Could any of us have thought that up on our own? I couldn't. If you gave me 10,000 years and a complete fellowship, go to the Stanford, think, you know, everything taken care of, I would never come up with the fact that, you know, if you just pay attention to the breath, you can get to a certain degree of real happiness. Oh, yeah, all right. No, I've got to read about 10 volumes about happiness, and then I'll be happy, right? Well, does it, is, has it worked for you? I read more than 10 volumes on it. It didn't work for me. And this simple-minded, idiotic, just coming back to the breath again and again, and, and there's a certain joy that comes out. Temporarily, temporarily, all of those thoughts go into abeyance. They're not plaguing us. They're not eating up energy. And we sink into the, the beginnings of the intrinsic nature of the mind, which is happy and joyful. It's just intrinsic. Okay. So maybe you put two and two together. When I do this, that hurts. When I do this, this is really good. And you stop valuing all the productions of the mind so much. You start seeing them as impersonal. You have no control of them. It's like digestive juices are being secreted by some gland. It's like the brain keeps secreting thoughts, blah, 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 on and on, blah, blah. What is contradictory, inconsistent, stupid, repetitive? Uh, and sometimes we identify with it and we're very, we think we're spontaneous. If you look at it, you see there's no spont, it's impersonal. Just coming out again. And then, of course, there's a skillful use of thought. Thought is beautiful. Okay. So then maybe more and more, it becomes easier to, to appreciate a practice of breath. And you don't get bored. Some of you have gotten bored. I understand. I did, too, at the beginning. Because you haven't experienced the value of it yet. You will. If you keep doing it, you will. It's, it's lawful. It's not reserved for special mystics who go into caves and mountains and eat one piece of celery every year. It's, it isn't. Okay. So this, this gentleman returns to the king and proudly says, hey, I went through every room in the palace and I didn't spill a drop of oil. So the king says, wonderful, wonderful. And he says, but are there any intrigues in the palace? Who's happy? Who's unhappy? Any... Uh, uh, Who's sleeping with who? Any uh, plots to overthrow me? Uh, what's going on there? Who's getting sick? Who's healthy? The person said, how do I know? I was so concentrated on not spilling a drop of oil, I didn't notice anything going on. And he said, okay, now go back to all those rooms with the same pot of hot oil and don't drop, uh, spill a drop, but let me know what's going on here. That's the second set of instructions. Get it? Or is it too deep? Okay, but then again, um, and that's the end of the story. <laughs> okay, but now we're going to mess the story up a little bit, because what's the quality of, of this uh, aspiring yogi who goes through all these rooms with the oil and doesn't spill it? He's looking with the eyes that he has. 
And here we know that a lot of the seeing is colored. It's not clear. It's colored by our conditioning, by our likes and our dislikes and our fears and our aspirations and our wantings and not wantings, etc. So, and that's, so the, the art of observation, of really clear seeing, is central to, to a wisdom practice. Because it's, as, and here's the next Indian, Indian teaching story. It's from ancient India as well. It's just, it's very simple. It's someone sees a rope at dusk. The sun is going down. And they mistake it for a snake. And they get frightened. In other words, what you see, that is your reality. And they ran away shrieking. That was just a rope. Now, this isn't in the story, but I'm going to add to it. Supposing it's a snake and you see it as a rope, that's, that's bad because it could bite you. Okay, so seeing is a real art because as the mind, so that it's not just to be steady and to look, it's to be accurate. And so a lot of what awareness is about is a refinement of seeing so that it becomes steadier, clearer, more reliable, and accurate, and also not pushed around by conditions. Things come and go. The Buddha supposed, was supposedly mastered, come what may seeing. Come what may. Come what may watching the clock. Okay. Remember the talk last night by Michael? Uh, the importance of relaxation, that it really can be quite a profound idea. It's not simply going to a spa. Um, let's go back to the instructions and bring it into our instructions today and then uh, maybe that's just enough to give you a hint about it's worth learning about your life. In order to do it, you have to develop certain skills, mainly of the mind. But you also have to be interested in learning. You have to be fed up enough with your suffering. You have to understand that there, maybe there are some possibilities that you don't know about, that we're not helpless. This is not fatalistic, as a few of you have thought, or passive. But the art of seeing is crucial. Um, Hmm. Okay. So we're developing just carrying that pot of oil. We did that for the first few days. And now we're bringing that into, in choiceless awareness, but we're opening up to just what's there. No agenda. Now, in real choiceless awareness, there's really no, no agenda and there's no effort, right? It's just effort is natural. And in fact, even seeing what's skillful and unskillful, it's less of an effort. It's sort of as the mind gets clear, it's so obvious what's skillful and what's un unskillful. A clear mind inclines towards what's beneficial without getting attached to it, grabbing on because it's... And a clear mind avoids what's not beneficial, what's harmful, without getting averse to it. That's a tendency. Uh, now, this is something that grows out of practice. You can't make it happen. So as, as this starts to happen, uh, the practice becomes just smoother. It becomes uh, much more joy. But we can help it along. Okay. The relaxation theme. Uh, for the first few days when we gave the instructions about learning how to allow the breath to just be the breath that just happened, and we mentioned that that is an art to be learned, the art of allowing or perhaps in more religious terms, to surrender. But it's not to God or to the Buddha. It's surrendering to your own, to nature in a way. Uh, the breath is a, is a force of nature. The mind is a force of nature. And learning how to relax, to be alert and sensitive and relax, and watch and learn. Uh, my first and finally, uh, he's never left me, most important teacher was not a Buddha. His name was J. Krishnamurti. And uh, towards the end, he was asked, well, you've been doing this stuff for, I don't know, many, 70 years. He died at about 91, almost. And um, he said, can you sum it up very briefly? What is it? And he paused, and he just said, infinite watching. Okay. But that sounds cold and distant and detached. No. The looking we're talking about is you're intimate with your life. The awareness is not detachment, which is a struggle. Detachment is fighting with attachment. This is not that. This is opening up. And the relaxation, it's not just about the breath. We're learning that art. We're beginning to learn it. So then we can now sit and 
allow whatever the mind yields to, to, to bring it forth so that we can get to know it. If you want to get to know a person, you have to spend some time with them. You have to pay attention and see their likes and dislikes and this, that, and the other. You know that. It's the same with your mind. If you want to learn about yourself, and it's a pilgrimage of self-discovery, and the only one who can do it is you. It's about you learning about yourself. That means you have to more and more, it's not just sitting, which is vital, helpful, but it's a commitment to understand that as you live out your life, there's also, you, what you value is you, you watch the implications of how you're living. And it's possible for that, with practice it becomes natural. As you live, you learn, live and learn, live and learn, live and learn. And you start, it's a skill. And so, for example, knowing the difference between something that's skillful and unskillful, meaning beneficial or harmful, that improves. At first, we have to use our mind just as it is. We can't wait until it's perfect, completely accurate. So we do the best we can. But then if we see it's a mistake, just like too much paprika, then we learn from it. And little by little, we start to learn what is wise and what is unwise, what is compassionate and what is cruel. And we learn by watching. But the watching has to be accompanied by an interest in learning. So choiceless awareness, using that term, it's choiceless in the following ways. No agenda. Now, actually, we have a bit of an agenda. Some of you are using the breath as an anchorage. But eventually, that probably will fall away, and there will just be awareness. And we do keep reminding you, uh, be the knowing. Be that which is aware. Okay. And to begin with, we're trying to be choiceless. We're trying to, choiceless means no agenda. It also means not being for or against what we're aware of. Not be, it's a non-reactive mind. It's a non-conceptual wakefulness. It's not thinking about. If thinking comes, you can be aware that thinking is happening. It's different than being caught up in thinking. Don't believe everything you think. Bumper sticker in Cambridge. Pretty good one. Okay, so, and we work back and forth, both skills. Now, this is a traditional way of working. Actually, they're not that sealed off from each other. In other words, the um, concentration practice and the insight practice, they're not. Um, for purposes of, of teaching, it's useful to divide it this way. But I think as you practice more and more, they kind of disappear into each other. And you can develop steadiness and samadhi and concentration on anything. And it can be moment to moment. So whatever you're doing, if you're interested, and inter to me, interest is the natural samadhi. Are you interested in, I assume everyone here is, or you wouldn't be here, you're interested in the quality of your life. What we're trying to encourage all of us to do, I'm doing it with myself, is to, to encourage ourselves to, keep, to learn, to pay attention and learn. Now, here's why, it's, why I'm going through such a buildup. This is what I've discovered. I don't think it's unique to Cambridge. I talked to my a friend in Rome. I've talked to people on the West Coast. A lot of the people who show up to learn how to meditate, not all, show up and some have been very successful, some not so successful in different aspects of being alive, adults, let's say. And they turn up at the center and they're emotionally exhausted for all kinds of reasons. I, is it, it, probably we all you know, can sympathetically understand that. And sometimes, to make a little bit of a cartoon out of it, it's just simply, teachers, just tell me what to do. I don't want to know about learning and insight and all that. Just give me a drill, in, out, in, out, in, out, and then I'll be OK, right? Wrong. It can become very mechanical. It can become, and it can improve your life a little bit. And here, I want to, so um, what I'm trying to do, personally, it happened to me out of seeing the limitations of learning being limited to just knowledge, is light a fire on all of our collective buns that, uh, to, 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 that, there's what, that life is really fascinating and it's alive. But I don't mean it as some romanticism. Because when the mind gets clear, no one has to convince you about it. Nature is extraordinary. Everything is. And I don't mean it as an ideology or some philosophy, but the mind, when the mind is clear, now we've had moments of it, I'm sure, I assume all of us have, and that just grows. But that includes suffering. 
Now, I want to finish again with one implication of Michael's talk last night of relaxing. Sometimes people assume that discipline is getting up at 2 in the morning and making every sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, uh, you know, until 12 at night, then going to sleep for two hours, then getting up the next morning, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, going to sleep, having an interview with the teacher. How many hours did you sleep? Two hours. Good. Cut it down to one. You know. Uh, okay, we're now going to sit for three hours, no movement. Uh, everyone must make every sitting. But you don't understand. I have this physical, I don't want to hear about it. Just show up or get out. Okay, so it's militaristic. We are not, so that's considered more disciplined, kind of stronger. It's kind of valuable. Tra I call that training. I was in the Army. You do a tremendous amount of drill over and over and over again. It's a kind of learning. And training can be a beautiful word, too. I see learning and training can be a little bit different. And some part of our practice is uh, drill or training. We do repeat things again and again, uh, certainly to begin with. Here's what I'd like to leave you with. There's another kind of discipline. And that does come from a much more relaxed and under, underrated. It's not valued because, in a way, we don't know it exists. And this is, I'll finish this up, because it has to do with learning. Um, I checked the etymology of the word discipline, and it has a very interesting, one of its roots is disciple in the, in the Greek. Uh, and so to me, uh, this practice, you become a disciple of your own understanding. Granted, teachers can be a bit of help. We're like coaches and cheerleaders, and you know, we give you, we point, I hope, in a, in a reasonable direction. But finally, you have to do all the work and l start learning to trust, especially as the mind gets clearer, that what you're learning, you learned it. It's yours firsthand. And can you then check it to see if that's a genuine skill with other people who are more advanced than you or people who know a lot? Sure, of course. But finally, it's your life, each one of us. And to become a disciple of your own, und of your own understanding, that can, uh, relaxation uh, is very important there. And that can happen anywhere. So that, for example, to get ahead of ourselves in the evening, Maybe this has already been said. Uh, when the last sitting ends, and then uh, of, the, of the schedule, like tonight, last sitting, and then there's usually some encouragement. If you feel still have some energy, come back and do some sitting or some walking. If you don't, go to sleep, have a hot drink, and so forth. We always, I think mostly we, we do that. Sometimes maybe we forget, but we, I think we mainly do it. But let me, this is what I mean to become a disciple of your own understanding. Um, it's the last sitting. The bell rings. Should I go to sleep, or should I come back to the hall? Uh, and you want a rule. And te you know, teachers are all too eager to We give you certain guidelines. They're, they're general. They don't have to do with you. And they don't give you the opportunity to learn to how to take care of yourself. So sometimes wisdom is going to sleep. Sometimes wisdom is, is coming back, having a hot drink and coming back, and maybe sitting for two or three hours and walking. Now, how do you know which is which? Because it's so easy to fool ourselves. The mind loves, it just wants, a, it wants pleasure. It wants the easy way out. It wants to give you, it's the, one of the best lawyers in town. It's brilliant. What do you want? I want to go to sleep. I think you should go to sleep. That's wisdom. Oh, OK. I'm a disciple of my own understanding. <laughs> but as you start to listen and become more sensitive, you, wisdom is an art, this kind of intelligence. It's subtle. And by listening and watching and learning and experimenting, little by little, your, the quality of your attention becomes more accurate. A sensitivity develops that I have found is less likely to develop in the militaristic style. Both are needed in a way. I mean, certainly at the beginning. And this will take is very, very useful in all of life because teachers can't follow you around, etc. And finally, each one of us has to live out our own life. And wouldn't it be nice if you started to develop confidence in your ability to understand yourself 
and to make the best choices you can. If you make a mistake, you learn from it and correct it. If it turns out to be something that's beneficial, you uh, allow a certain joy to come upon you that your practice really helped, and you move on. You don't cling to it. So uh, our style of practice, don't underestimate relaxation. It's not that we just want you to have a good time. But that it's on the edge of being spa. We want you to leave as kind of user-friendly, happy customers so that you'll say, IMS is a great place. I really like it. They make you happy when you, we all were very happy there. <laughs> I think you all know that you aren't always happy here. Okay. But if you start to more and more see it as, a, as an opportunity to learn, and it's not limited to IMS, obviously. I'm speaking about anywhere and everywhere. So the Four Noble Truths, to me, it's very alive. And the Eightfold Path, it's not that it proceeds one, two, three, like a progression. They're like, one, another image of it is like a cable, you know, where there are eight intertwined or a strong rope. They're all working simultaneously. That's how I've been teaching it tonight. There's three that I didn't deal with. They have to do with right livelihood, they have to do with right speech, and they have to do with right action. I'm saving that before we go home, because here, how much speech do you do? And how about right, right action or right livelihood? Uh, you know, right action, you don't steal. Well, what are you going to steal here? Sometimes, I remember once, sometimes here there'll be a sign, you know, chocolate chip cookies. One, for, one each first time around, and somebody, I once saw somebody look around and pilfer a second one. <laughs> That's about the extent of the criminal subculture here. Could we have a few moments of silence? Thank you very much. Let's do some walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.